think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's a life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome back to the Elevated Denver podcast, where we're bringing key topics and stories about homelessness to light. We're excited for today's episode on the first of our two-part series on the hidden voices of homelessness. We will hear directly from people you would never imagine were unhoused, as well as others who are involved in supporting these individuals. We'll bring you data, context, and we'll highlight solutions. I'm here with Leanne, Jana, and Myra. Throughout the episode, you'll hear Jana and Myra asking our guests questions, and Leanne tying some threads together through the narration. I think you'll enjoy it, so stay with us. Before we start, we want to let you know that we went through an informed consent process with everyone we interviewed. And before airing each of these episodes, we sent the recording to the interviewees to make sure that they were still comfortable with us sharing their story. I want to acknowledge that parts may be triggering for some listeners. If so, please take care. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series on the hidden populations of homelessness. As we mentioned in Episode 6, the point-in-time count for 2022 found that over 4,700 individuals were unhoused in Denver. However, we know this number only includes people sleeping in shelters, transitional homes, or on the streets. In reality, the number is much greater if you include people who are living in their cars, in motels, couch surfing, and in other temporary and precarious housing situations. These are the unhoused people who are hidden from the broader homeless services landscape. The most visible homeless, those who are unsheltered, on the streets, and often experiencing mental health crises and or active substance use, are a small portion of the unhoused or unstably housed in our community. Here's how Dr. Jamie Reif, the executive director of the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, or MDHI, describes who these hidden populations are. One of the numbers that we hear about a lot are the point-in-time count, and that is when, again, we try to go out and coordinate kind of a one-night count of people staying, you know, outside in places not meant for human habitation, their vehicles, and also people staying in shelter, transitional housing, things like that. In January of 2022, there were 6,884 people in the seven-county metro Denver region on a single night experiencing homelessness. Now, in Denver alone, there were 4,794 Here's the thing about that. That's a one-night snapshot. And what is challenging with that is that is a number that for decades we've been reporting to Congress and to the federal government, and that's how we've been resourced for decades is based on a one-night snapshot. We now have something called the Homeless Management Information System, and that is a system where we can actually see people in real time who are experiencing homelessness. So as compared to the 6,884 people that we found on a single night, what we see across a year is that nearly 28,000 people in our region are experiencing homelessness. And could you talk a little bit, too, about the definition of homelessness when we think about that number? 
Yeah, so that's really the number of people experiencing literal homelessness. So they're staying in, like, the shelters, whether that's a safe outdoor space or a traditional shelter bed, like some of our, the Rescue Mission, Catholic Charities, some of our other, you know, traditional shelters in the region. It's also people that are staying outdoors. We do also look at people staying in vehicles or, like, safe parking, as well as people staying in something called Safe Haven. And that's a very small number, but that is really the comprehensive literal homelessness definition. I think what's interesting about that is different agencies have different definitions. So if you look at like the educational definition, that includes students who are actually um, staying with other families being called doubled up. And what that means is they, for economic reasons, don't have a place to stay. They would not be counted under the HUD definition, the federal homeless definition for HUD. They would be counted under the educational definition. And then, of course, we know resources are allocated according to the definition. So if you're not a student, you need to be literally homeless to receive services. That's one of the challenges, I think. Well, it's one of the many challenges that we have in our system is that if you're not experiencing homelessness right now, literal homelessness, it's actually significantly harder to get any sort of resources to prevent it before it starts. Or to like if you are doubled up or you are experiencing the McKinney-Vento, the education definition, which is about three quarters of our students who are defined as, as homeless under the education definition, they're not eligible for housing resources. As we heard from Jamie, the point-in-time count only identifies about a quarter of folks experiencing homelessness. Yet this data is still used to determine funding levels for many programs. As Jamie said, HMIS data is often more comprehensive and therefore more accurate. However, the Office of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, continues to use the point-in-time data for funding. The U.S. Department of Education has its own broader definition of homelessness under the McKinney-Vento Act, which includes families who are doubled up, sleeping in single-room occupancy motels, or in otherwise unstable housing conditions. McKinney-Vento also gives school districts funding to support students in these situations through a variety of programs. Between all the discrepancies in these data points and in the definitions of homelessness, who do we leave behind? These are the hidden populations of the unhoused. In this episode, we'll introduce you to a few college students who've experienced homelessness, Frankie, Lena, and Luis. First up is Frankie, who's studying biology at Metro State University, Denver, or MSU. My name is Frankie. I'm a biology major at MSU, and I live with my cat. I lived in and out of my car for two years. Um, I would stay with friends here and there, but um, mostly it was out of my car um, when I started school in 2020. So what was that like, living in your car? How did that feel? How did that feel? Humbling. Um, yeah, I don't know what else. A little scared sometimes. Where would you park your car? So I worked at a salon, and um, that's where I would shower and use the bathroom. And I was pretty lucky. I had friends and things like that, so I could shower and be a normal human being. But, yeah, I would just park on the street, cover my windows, and 
sleep. I remember being in my car just doing schoolwork, hooked up to the Wi-Fi of the salon, and I remember very vividly doing homework in, in the car. Frankie would not technically have been considered homeless, but she spent two years of college living in her Kia Soul, finding places to safely park, to shower, and to eat, all while completing her homework. Next, we'll hear from Lena, a secondary English education major at MSU Denver. I am Lena. I am 29 years old. I'm the first person to go to a university. I live with my mother, who has arthritis in her knees and her shoulders, um, so I help take care of her. I have two cats and a dog and a partner. What kind of living arrangement is it? It is a two-bedroom apartment, which is a huge upgrade from the fact that we, um, before this, were living in a motel for two years. <laughs> so How did you get into the par- apartment? Um, my mom had been working on getting disability for two years and she finally got that. And initially they wanted to give it to her over a period of time, but she went in and she was like, Hey, we are living in a motel. We want to be out of this motel. Is there anything we can do to get it now? And they, they made it work for us. And because a, a big part of the problem was that we couldn't get into an apartment because they expect you to have to make two to three times the rent. I think that the apartment we live in actually expects you to make 3.5 times the rent, which is absolutely outrageous. And she couldn't work. So we were only on my income. And motels are not cheap. Like, that was not a cheaper way to live. It was actually a more expensive way to live. But we couldn't get out of there because we didn't meet income requirements. We also heard from Luis, a student who's studying computational and applied mathematics at the School of Mines after moving from Houston to Denver two and a half years ago. My name is Louise. In Houston, we were pretty good up until 2008. And then after 2008, we just, uh, poor people get hit the hardest during recessions, right? We were pr- we were pretty comfortable. And then after that, housing became very unstable. We ended up in some pretty, pretty minority-dominated neighborhoods, uh, not cartel-ridden neighborhoods. And then after that, it got really bad. Uh, the influence around me kind of deterred me, and so I went into the street. And then after that, I got on into drugs, sadly. Um, I've been sober now. And then after that, we decided to move because once fentanyl hit the neighborhood, it was like a bomb. Like, literally, just it looked like people were just dying. And then the violence shot up, so we decided to come over here to get out of that. We ended up here in Denver. It's not that cheap, and it's a 2-1. Um it's not that cheap, but all bills are included, but it eats away at like 40, 50% of our income. It's three people living here, one bathroom. Housing instability among college students is a big issue, particularly for those attending schools in urban settings. Here, we have individuals trying to further their education and move out of poverty, and they're still struggling. The stress of housing instability is palpable. We also talked to Abby Kell, 
the student housing project manager at MSU, who talked about how the housing crisis impacts students. In 2021, we did a survey called the Real College Survey on our campus. And from that survey, we found out that about 51% of our students are experiencing some form of housing insecurity. And of that, 13% actually went through a period of homelessness while they were attending college. And we pretty sure that those numbers are actually kind of low because we had a lower turnout rate for that survey. And so we know that the need is a lot higher based on our student care center and how many students are coming in. The students we spoke with shared a little about how the stresses of poverty and housing instability are impacting them. Here's Luis. Pretty much making sacrifices sometimes, uh, you know, reducing caloric intake, not eating out as much. Uh, I honestly, like, I have this anxiety. I enjoy being under a roof because I, I know what it's like to, like, not have that or to be, like, in someone else's roof. I have that anxiety and when I'm going to school as well, um, sometimes I have to go and I have to get food from the pantries that they have there. I'll bring that home. Uh, I don't sleep very well. I'm always like nervous, Uh, not like always nervous, but just kind of like anxious. You know, you never know what the future holds. You never know if the landlord or if inflation keeps going up, Uh, you're going to be sleeping in your car. Hopefully my, my careers will give me enough money, but just a lot of, like, uncertainty, uh, depression, um, anger, frustration, uh, also a lot of temptation in the street to go make money, not because I want to go and go to the five-star restaurant with the with the good-looking girl, it's just to pay my mom's rent. Like, my mom doesn't even have all her teeth, you know what I'm saying, because of how expensive things are. She can't even save up to get her teeth fixed. And so it becomes very frustrating like that. that it's just kind of summarizing and kind of going over it, really. Here's Lena. I was working remotely, taking classes remotely, and then doing my homework. So I was doing all of this in a motel room. I was doing all of that in a mo- like one room. And my mom is in there. And, you know, she... We're, we're trying to kind of let each other do our own things. And that was not easy. <laughs> and then, you know, when I needed to do my homework, there were distractions. Luckily, like my mom and I have a really good relationship. So that was helpful. And she's very supportive of me. So she wanted to do everything she could to, you know, make it as easy as she could. But it was still, you know, the, the distractions and then just the fact that you know I was unhappy <laughs> I mean I, I I have depression but I mean I think that anybody would feel depressed living in that space with that much I was in therapy and I I had a psychiatrist during it which was also fun because you know those were virtual sessions. <laughs> And it was kind of like, okay, mom, I have therapy. Will you go outside for an hour? So it was just chaotic. And um, she, the, the room was supposed to be accessible for her, but it really was not. Um, so she couldn't go out into the kitchen. So I had to be the one to make dinner. and. 
I had to clean the dishes and stuff like that. And sometimes that was just really hard to make myself do. And so it just became really messy. And um, that just added to the stress level and then made it harder to deal with. And just like a cycle that continued. Here's Frankie. And what prompted you to be living in your car? Oh, I was in a moldy apartment and it made me sick. And um, I couldn't work, and um, it's expensive to live. So I had to just do what I had to do. So you got sick at your apartment, and of course you moved out. Did you have to go to hospitals and stuff like that? Um, I ended up developing asthma um, from the mold, and um, so I've been seeing doctors and all of that, getting prescribed new meds and and um it I just had to work it work it out you know cough it up living with housing instability often leaves you with few choices there are constant trade-offs Abby from MSU discusses more of these So our students are juggling lots of things. They have lots of things on their plate. They're probably working. They're probably taking care of someone in their family, helping supporting that. And they're trying to complete school at the same time. And they're trying to go to school, um, but they also still have to survive. They still have to pay for their cost of living. And all of this is with the goal to thrive for themselves, but they're being left behind. And they have little bandwidth to really navigate any sort of public benefits or assistance. Because when you have so much like that on your plate, it's so hard to get ahead. And it's so hard to have space to help yourself. So when a student walks through your door and says, I may not have a place to live in six weeks, and I'm a part-time student, a part-time, you know, employee, I have a dependent three-year-old, and my mom, who has arthritis, is taking care of my three-year-old, and we all may be out on the streets in some weeks, what do you do? You know, you peel apart the layers. Don't forget to add an eviction in there because there probably <laughs> is one. I only say that because when when it rains, it pours for our students. It's not just one thing like, hey, I can't afford my rent. But I also have a dog I have to take care of. I also have a child I have to take care of. I also have a felony. And it's really hard for me to find a place. And so one of the, the great things we do is we really just try to meet the students where they're at. Um, and we try to peel back those layers piece by piece. It's one of the troubling and hard things about the assistance programs we have when it comes to our housing is that we do have a lot of options for single parents and vets, but we really don't have a lot of options for that single independent filer. And I hate that I have to use that term, but that's that's how the government sees us is, and sees those students as a single independent filer. So there's not really a lot of options for that person. So we're sort of penalizing the independent student who there's an expectation, maybe culturally or societally, that they go to college, get a degree, but aren't, you know, can't um, find a, a way to live and thrive in an expensive city. We'll be right back. All companies want to be successful, but it's how they define success that makes all the difference. Companies that seek to perform financially and have a positive impact on people and the planet are a critical part of what it will take to build an elevated Denver. For key lessons in how to do this from best-in-class companies, including a surprising approach to prevent homelessness, visit stakeholderbusiness.com. And now, back to the show. 
While many students are able to qualify for grants and loans and even scholarships, those often don't cover the cost of housing, especially in an expensive city like Denver. Abby told us that MSU doesn't have dormitories like more traditional universities, which leaves many students at the mercy of Denver's rental market, where rents have increased by 30% or more in some areas since the pandemic began in March 2020. Where we are in in our society that um, when paying for college, the answer is always take out loans, is take out student loans. You can apply for your financial aid and you can apply for scholarships to see what you qualify and what you can what you can use to help pay for your tuition, your room and board. And whatever is left over, you can use that towards your cost of living. You can use it towards food. You can use it towards rent. You can use it towards gas. And now a lot of the answers we're directing students towards, like, well, this is not going to be enough return for me to be able to pay for my monthly rent. Um, And the answer is only thing we can offer them is after we've exhausted the Pell Grant, financial aid, and scholarships, is for you to take out loans. If you're not able to work or do a work study, you know, student loans is where the direction we give to students. And that's that's not the best answer. The Pell Grant was created to cover the cost of attendance for a four-year college. And through the years, we have really seen it stretch with the rising cost of tuition. Now, with the way things have stretched, the Pell Grant really only covers maybe 30 or 40 percent of actual students' tuition. And that's only half of what you actually have to pay. And, and that doesn't even include the books and fees that you will also come, nor the cost of living. And so there really has been a lot of calls to almost double or triple what that Pell Grant can do and offer our students because they rely on it to be able to go to school and to come out of school without debt. And we really want to see them achieve success with that. Another difficult barrier a lot of our students are going through is the debt ceiling, meaning they've maxed out the amount of loans the federal government will offer them based on their income, which doesn't leave them any other options to to pay for college or their cost of living. And they have to either seek out private loans, which often have a much higher interest rate, or drop out of school altogether and then still be left with those loans. Here's how Lena described her own struggles affording housing, even though she receives financial aid. You get financial aid, but primarily it pays for your school. And then how are you supposed to, you know, make up enough other income to live? Yeah, theoretically, it's supposed to pay for, like, they say schooling and, like, the materials and housing and stuff, but they don't, they, they, they don't give you close to enough for that. I do get loans. Um, So that helps some, of course, I know I'm going to be paying for that later, but um, survival mode, (laughs) can't really worry about that. So it's just like the Pell Grant and stuff like that. And after they paid for my classes, the aid that I got was $258. And I had to buy two books really difficult to pay for anything after yeah I think after my books I had like a hundred dollars left financial aid is based off your FAFSA application so you fill a finance your FAFSA application and that takes an estimate of your income of your household so that can be different depending on what your household is built on it can be different if you do live with your parents it can be different if you identify as independent it can be different if you have children and dependents as well. At MSU Denver, um, actually 30% of our students do receive that Pell Grant and qualify for it. 
But to kind of further into that conversation about the Pell Grant, the Pell Grant really hasn't been fully supported in years and really needs to be doubled for how much institutions are charging for the cost of attendance and then also the cost of living. So what's being done to help these students? As it turns out, a lot is being done. Universities like MSU have student support staff and recognize what a challenge housing instability can be for students. However, the scale of the issue is much larger than the programs designed to alleviate it. I live in the Dean of Students office, and I support students with understanding their housing options at MSU Denver. And so I'm there to kind of navigate what options they have, where they can go, also understand their financial aid and how that works and how they can use that to pay for their housing. And then in a more extended way, I kind of, I help students navigate um, their own experience with housing and understanding where they are and how to apply for apartments, how to get into apartments, how to search for apartments, how to budget for an apartment. And then I also support our care center with resources and options for students who are housing insecure or going through an episode of homelessness. So I help uh, have connections and directions for where we can go with rental assistance, where they can go with housing options when it comes to subsidized housing or low-income tax credit properties. I kind of help navigate that process for them and help them understand their benefits. Our Student Care Center, we sometimes call it the SEC, is basically a catch-all for the university. Whenever a student is going through anything at the university, whether it's a a disgruntled frustration with a a professor or they are confused about their financial aid or they're struggling to get a hold of someone in the bursar's office or they have to appeal because they didn't do well that semester and they're trying to appeal to receive financial aid the next semester, they uh, come to the care center and they have case managers there that help them navigate their options. A big thing, though, what we also deal with is basic needs, so food insecurity and housing insecurity. And actually about 80% of our students that get referred to us are referred to us for either being housing insecure or for being homeless. Frankie, who works in the campus food pantry, offered this anecdote. I was utilizing the space, um, the food pantry before, because of my situation, and then I thought to give back, I'd like to work there. And we've grown so much. Um, it's, an, it's been fun to be a part of that. How many students do you think you serve through the pantry? So when I started, it was maybe 80 a week. We're now, we hit, in the, during the semester, 800 a week. Now that, it's, now that it's summer, it's about 100 a week. So do you feel um, like it's part of your journey to give back as you're working? Um, totally. totally, absolutely. Um, I have to give back because they were there for me, and you know, you want other people to know that we're there for them. What is the systemic barrier that these students are facing? To Abby, it's about who we define as homeless and who we just see as having fallen on hard times. I think some additional context is that college students don't really fit the mold for our typical homeless services in the city, and it's really not who they were designed for. So there's a really mismatch of needs and system design to help support them. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you to all of our interviewees for taking the time to talk with us and to share your experiences and perspectives. If you liked today's episode, consider giving us a good rating and help others find us by sharing the show with your network. 
If you want to keep these episodes coming, visit elevateddenver.co slash donate, where we will put your donation to good use. And to dig in more on the issue, check out the show notes and additional information at elevateddenver.co slash resources. Tune in next time for the second of this two-part series on people you would never imagine were unhoused. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by House of Pod. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.